We are on the cusp of a major social change. Do you feel it? Even if you don't, make no mistake, change is coming, and it is going to be unforgettable. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Hart, and here on Prime Spark, where we work with and on behalf of women over 55, I want to help you find that spark that will ignite your way forward, reflect your gifts to the world, and illuminate your path through this next stage of life. Through these podcast conversations, I hope to inspire you to see how you can make a significant contribution to some of the gnarly problems that are facing us right now. Join me, and together, let's discover our Prime Spark. Hi, and welcome to Prime Spark. I'm Sarah Hart, and I'm so happy you're here with us today. Prime Spark is designed for women over 55 or close with a goal to help us all live our happiest, most fulfilling, and productive lives now and in the future. The mission of Prime Spark is to change the way our society sees and treats older women. It's a big mission, which only means we all need to be involved and we need to get going now. And today I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Judith Rabinar, a woman whose work I greatly admire. Judith Ruske Rabinar, PhD, is a clinical psychologist, author, speaker, and consultant to the Renfrew Center Foundation and supervisor at the Center for the Study of Anorexia and Bulimia, New York City. She offers psychotherapy consultations for individuals, couples, and families, and conducts groups for binge eaters and for clinicians. She runs writing workshops privately and teaches at the Marlene Meyerson JCC in New York City. She has worked with 9-11 survivors and trained mental health professionals in Uganda. Judy is the author of A Starving Madness, Tales of Hunger, Hope, and Healing. Befriending your ex after divorce, making life better for you, your kids, and yes, your ex. And The Girl in the Red Boots, Making Peace with My Mother. Welcome, Judy. I'm so happy you're here today. And Sarah, I'm delighted that we're going to get a chance to chat today. Yes. Good. So in getting started, let me just ask you, do you experience getting older? And if you do, what is that experience? And if you don't, why is it that you think that you don't? You know, that's a great question. So let me jump in and tell you that there are times that I completely feel old. And there are times that I feel like I'm a teenager. So. Can I say a bit more? Please. Okay. When I'm doing something where I'm engaged, I just feel like the same old me, even though I'm now, okay, I'm going to say it out loud. I am an octogenarian. I am 80. I turned 80 in October. It was really a big moment. But there are times that I still feel just the way I felt when I was 25, 35, 45, 55. If I'm working on a writing project, if I'm even gathering ideas together for a talk like this, 
I'm enthusiastic. I'm like, everything is on fire. However, if I have to call up like um, Verizon and I get on the wrong call and then I don't have my password and then they have to send um, a confirmation link to another device and then I look at my other device and I think, where's my link? I feel, oh my gosh, how did I, how did the world get like this? Where is the old world? Take me back to even to the year 2000, we weren't doing this, right? Oh, no, so much. I mean, I think that's really weird, Judy. I was just thinking about this the other day when I was trying to do something technologically that I had never done before. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, all this has changed just in the last four or five years. I mean, and you know what I think it shows? I think it shows our incredible resilience. I'm in agreement. It is amazing to me. When the world shut down in March 2020, in one day, I learned how to run my entire psychotherapy practice online get people on. I got an assistant for some of my older patients who couldn't figure anything out. I mean, it was amazing how we just shifted into uh, the world as it was. So I'm also impressed with my own resilience. Thank well, you for mentioning <laughs> I think you should be because I think it's, I think it's pretty astounding. I mean, so many women I know who um, are still working either for themselves or inside a, an organization, on uh, March 2020, had to just on a dime turn and start doing everything online, including young mothers with children at home and had to get them online for school. I mean, it's just as mind-blowing what we were able to do. So even though you're 80, look what you do. I'm in agreement. I cannot believe that during the pandemic, I learned how to run a webinar, how to manage the chat, how to talk to people, how to show PowerPoint slides, all of this on every electronic device. You know, we'd get up in the morning and that was your biggest dread, that something would crash. You had to have everything plugged in all the time, right? And we did it. It's really something. So now I feel like now I'm so lucky. I feel like I have an encyclopedia in my pocketbook all the time. If I don't understand something, I just look it up on my phone. That's right. I, that's right. I was that was um I was thinking about um a research project and I was all of a sudden I thought of going to the library and going to the card catalog and right. looking up the journals and the books and finding the and using the Dewey decimal system. Right. I think a lot of what I wanted was in 800s. I don't even know what that is, but in I my know. mind is 800s. Anyway, and then going to the stacks, which I loved, and finding what I needed, and then taking them to my little Carol. You know, I mean, that is no nobody below the age of, I don't know what, 60 would have any idea what I was talking about. Absolutely. I feel the same. I wrote my dissertation half in a local library here, and I would breathe such a sigh of relief walking in away from my family, away from work. Now I had a few hours to myself. And then during the pandemic, we just all lived on top of each other at home. And those of us who had company in the house, we were lucky. 
because it wouldn't have been so much fun to be stuck home all by yourself for such a long time, right? I was home with my cat. Okay. Well, a cat is a wonderful companion. I love him. He's a real talker. So we had endless conversations. <laughs> okay. Now you, t- you said you light up and I've heard you uh, say this. You say you light up just even at the thought of a writing project. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So describe the process of writing to you that, that lights you up so much. You know, the process is so right now I'm working on a new project and but I need to set aside time. And so when I know that I have nothing scheduled till let's say 12 noon and I have the whole morning and I get all my papers organized and I get my computer organized, my coffee, and then I'm so happy. I like going into this zone. It's it's a zone of like I start writing, so I open up my document and I see where I was, and I try not to correct the first few sentences, not to, I try to jump in at the end, you know, and then I might have to do some research, and I love that, uh, and I I just enjoy the process of working with my thoughts. I think someone like Anna Quinlan said recently, she said, I write to know what I think. Yes. And that's how I feel. You're a writer too, right? Yes. And so, right, wouldn't you? It's so wonderful to give yourself the time to really think, what do I think? What word do I, what is the right word? Right? And, And to just play around with ideas as opposed to kind of, I call that the right brain wonderful experience as opposed to the left brain experience, which is go to the cleaners, call the travel agent, change the plane reservation, make the dinner reservation, all the to-do things you just have to check off. But this is a creative project that's in progress. It's I like I get that. I love that description. I mean, I mean, I think some um See, I don't think I know what I think until I either say it or write it. Because mm-hmm. sometimes when I say it, I realize after I've said it, oh, no, that's not what I really think. So mm-hmm. I think actually for me, I can I can do both, but probably deeper when I write than when I speak. Um, but I think I do some writing that is, um, is, is from my left brain. And it's it's not fun like writing from the right brain. Right. Writing from the left brain, you know, when you have to make a list. So if this is the situation, here are five things you can do. That's left brain. But but the idea of creating, of being creative, thinking about how to approach a, a challenging task and make it interesting and unique. After all, think of how much has been written already. And so what do we have to say that's really unique? And surprising enough, we come up with things, right? Right. I, I hope most of the time. I hope so. Yes. Yeah. What do, I think, do. what do you think we learn about ourselves as we're writing? I think we learn how resilient we are, and I think we learn that we have deep wells of feeling and emotion and information. You know, left brain too. We we have deep wells of experience that are just kind of packed away inside our gray matter. Um, and. Getting in touch with it, 
us make, makes us realize what rich lives we've led. And that's one of the things that I think is very important as people get older, that they get to really cherish the fact and honor the fact that they've lived a long time. The fact that we can remember so much from before the electronic age, right? Yeah, I sometimes wonder how how much we'll remember that we don't actually have to remember anymore like we used to. I know. Now they're saying, why should kids even learn how to do math where everything gets done on the phone? Soon people won't even know how to write. They won't have to know how to penmanship. Penmanship was a big part of elementary school for anybody from our generation. I remember when, um, I don't, this was some time ago now, but I remember when, uh, I I first had a computer and keyboard and stuff, and I thought, I will never be able to write on a keyboard. I I will have to write it out longhand and and then transcribe, you know, put it onto a keyboard. And I don't do that anymore. I write on the keyboard. Um, But I still think there's something to do with handwriting. That is, I don't, I don't know if anybody, I'm sure somebody studied that. I wonder if it goes to a different part of your brain when you're handwriting something as compared with when you're tapping it out on a keyboard. That is really interesting because your hand, when you're writing, your hand is more connected to your whole body, right? Right. I think, I think that's right. It feels like it to me. It feels like your whole body is getting into the act. And, and also it's slower. It's much slower to handwrite. And that means you get to self-correct and you get to monitor what you're writing. Whereas we can tap things out now so quickly. And you can correct immediately. Right, you can correct immediately. And so even, I don't know, what is the act of crossing out is different than the act of deleting. When you cross out, you can still see the word that you crossed out. But when you delete, it's done. Gosh, God knows we've all deleted things that we wish we didn't delete, right? (laughs) Whole things. (laughs) I remember uh, writing... uh, typing on a typewriter pages that had multiple carbon copies. Oh, right. Right, which meant you had to have multiple white things right, or, or colored things if the copies were different colors. Right. Oh, my goodness, that's amazing. Anyway, um, I, think that's, I think that's interesting. I feel like such an old fogey when I say, but I still think this, that kids should handwrite. I mean, they also obviously need to have good computer skills, but they need to learn to handwrite. I, I know. Well, I think we hate to see our old world evaporate, but the truth is, I mean, now everybody pays bills. You don't even need to sign your checks. It's true. You, you can get through a whole day without doing any, without carrying a dollar with you and without handwriting anything. It's just a different world. It's a totally different world. And what does occur to me when you say you can get through a whole day is, yes, but when I'm handwriting things, it doesn't 
go down so that I can't do anything for a while. Whereas if I'm on my computer and it goes down, I can't do anything for a while. Absolutely. I know. It's amazing. Amazing. Anyway, I'm thinking of your girl in the red boots, Making Peace with My Mother, which is your most recent book. Yes. um, I think... When you've said, although maddening mother problems are universal, the majority of adult women describe their relationship with their mother as one of the most important and one of the most complicated in their lives. That's fascinating to me. Can you say more about that? Well, I can. First of all, our mothers were, if you live in the Western world, there's a good chance that your primary caretaker was your mother. So our mothers were the first ones who jumped in and we bonded with. And that bond has shaped the way we respond to other relationships in our life. That first attachment bond is so important. And many people are writing about how even though things have gotten kind of better in the world, women are still not equal to men in terms of earning power, uh, in terms of many other things. Women still are, I hate to say this, kind of second-class citizens. And some theorists think that the reason the mother-daughter relationship is so fraught with conflict is mothers teach their daughters, we are second-class citizens and we have to do certain things. Oh, that's fascinating. I know. Do you find that still happening? Well, they just teach them that, not, they don't say it. No one says that out loud, but like during the pandemic, we know that so many more women gave up their jobs than men because the men made made more money. So women were demoted in this situation, their home. I remember a neighbor of mine, I thought she was going to kill herself or put a bullet through her head being the teacher to her three kids, not going to work exactly. And her husband was off all day working or he was holed up in a room working. And so women's work is not valued the way men's work is. Women doing the exact same job as men, I mean, you know this, make less money. Women psychologists make less than male psychologists. Women attorneys make less than male attorneys. Um, and. And women and girls know this and they resent it and they're angry that their mothers couldn't have given them a more powerful, you know, start out in the world. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes absolute sense. I'd never thought of that. I think that's fascinating because even if, I mean, like just just the case you just cited, and it happened to so many families mm-hmm. that no matter what the the woman, the mother, tries to teach her daughter. She still stayed home and her husband kept working. And she still didn't have the, I mean, when I got divorced, my ex-husband said to me, he who has the gold is in charge. And you know what that meant? It meant he had more money than I had. And he could afford to stay in this fight longer than I could. Because he had more money to spend on lawyers. And I was pressured to settle. Don't spend the money I have fighting somebody who was probably going to win. Because I was a psychologist and he was a lawyer. And he understood how the finances of the world worked. 
far better than I did. So, you know, in my book, I get, I've given so many talks since I wrote this book in 2021. And I didn't think this when I wrote it, but I've said one of the most powerful lines in this book is my mother was born in 1918, one year before women got the right to vote. And I never understood how that fact shaped her life. And it, we can't even imagine women not voting now. Well, we can imagine it. We can imagine it because we see how women's rights are being eroded. Right. We see how women's rights are being eroded. And we see how even before that, we had not achieved equality. Right. Right. And so, um, I mean, the uh, Equal Rights Amendment still hasn't been passed. I know. Which blows my mind. So have you seen since your since I mean with all the work that you've done with mother daughter relationships over the years mm -hmm. have you seen anything change in that or is it still all pretty much the same Well the way I got into working with mothers and daughters was back in the 70s when I began a practice of doing eating disorders the women were the ones who brought their children to therapy so mothers were bringing their daughters because you know that eating disorders predominantly affects girls and women. There are men who get who have eating disorders, but it's mostly women. So I was dealing with mothers and daughters. What do I think now? I think it's still predominantly women bringing the daughters to therapy. I do. I think even though things have improved, the women have just learned how to do everything. They not only work out of the house, they work in the house and they juggle most of the family responsibilities. I have two grown children who are married with families and they're the men in their families, my son and my son-in-law, they do far more than my husband did or my father did, but still their wives are running the show. That's the scene I, what do you see from where, where, where you're yeah. sitting? Yeah, no, I, I see the same thing. I mean, it's, um, I, the sentence I oftentimes hear from women who, who are very successful, very powerful, mm -hmm. out in the world, making all sorts of decisions, the sentence I still frequently hear is, my husband really helps out a lot. I know. Oh, doesn't that drive you crazy? It drives me crazy. It drives crazy. Right. I, have, I am waiting for the day when a woman says, right. I really help out in the house. Right. Exactly. Me too. Even Exactly. Do you know that I have a patient now? He is an attorney. His mother was an attorney. And he said, my mother said the feminist movement was the worst thing that happened to women because women now had to do everything. They had to make the, go out and make the, make the bacon and then they had to bring it home, fry it and clean it up. <laughs> That's a great. <laughs> I love that. Great. Yeah, that's great. Really didn't it? So they they go to work, but they work in the house and work out of the house. And his mother was responsible. He was one of eight kids, and his mother was responsible for really managing the home. Wow. And I don't know if the father helped or not, but being a full time attorney, having eight kids, and managing everything, right? So in your book, um, um, the Red Boots. Um, mm -hmm. You tell you you use the 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 um the uh, storytelling as the way to 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 tell the book story. Why mm -hmm. why did you use storytelling? 
Well, because people remember stories. We don't remember a list of, you know, mothers should do this and they shouldn't do that. Nobody remembers that. But we remember stories. So I wrote some very poignant stories. Um, I wrote some very poignant stories about ways my mother disappointed me and ways she stood up. Um, and the people who have read my book write letters and tell me I couldn't believe that this happened. I couldn't believe that that happened because they remember the stories. We don't really remember facts. We remember stories. And that's why I chose storytelling. It also keeps the reader on their toes when you jump around chronologically. And also a memoir is really, it, it's a theme as opposed to a chronological um, report of what happened, you know, from birth to age 80. Right. So I tried to make it interesting and creative and I feel really excited about the book. Yeah. You teach storytelling? Yeah, I do. I teach people to the when I in the classes I run and anybody interested can look on my website because I have some new things, one thing starting tonight and other things starting in the next few months. And I tell people you don't have to think what the final project the what the final product is going to look like. The important thing is to think of a scene and tell the story. Think of a scene, uh, think of something that happened that is really sticks out in your mind. Like if you had to make a list of the 25 most important things that happened in your life from zero to today, what are the, jump in and start writing. And then they can all be put together. Sometimes that's how people really see the themes in seeing what they've picked. As opposed to, I was born in Kansas and we moved to Nebraska. Right. <laughs> Just when you say that, I, I get bored. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Oh, Judy, you've done so many things in your life. You have um, wonderful work and good books. Uh, what are two or three things you've done that you're most proud of? Well, you know, that, thank you for asking that question. Um, I am proud of my work, and I am proud of the things you said, that I ran a group after 9-11 and I went to Uganda. But I'm most proud of the children that I raised, because that was the hardest job that I did of them all. And that raising children is really hard. We have so little guidance and so little know-how, and the world is changing. And I feel really proud of the fact that my, my children have picked wonderful people to marry, and they have children of their own, and I feel like their children are going to be leading the next gen, you know, the, the next generation. So I guess that is the truth. I feel proudest of the kids that I raised, and I also do feel very proud of my work. Um, I, I've been really fortunate being a psychologist, being a therapist, it's, it's God's work. I touch, I get to touch lives and I've been doing it for 40 years and that's really lucky. And I love it. I still love it. Somebody said to me a few weeks ago, a woman in her seventies, she said to me, and she knows she's been seeing me on and off for decades. She said, I want you to tell your children that you just gave birth to another child. And I said, tell me. And she said, I'm a new person. I'm a new person. Well, I mean, I don't know that I didn't really give birth to her. We gave birth to her, but helping her give birth to herself 
um, it's an honor. It's it's a lucky it's lucky work, and that's why I don't want to retire. That's why I feel like I'm lucky that I picked a field where I don't have to work full time and I don't have to work all the time, but I can still keep at it and keep learning. And I tell you, nobody learns as much as the teacher or the therapist. So I guess you know that it's the same thing doing these podcasts, right? Oh, it's, must- yeah, I, I love it. I love all, all the work I do. I just love, I, I, I just love it. Do you have people say to you, Judy, when are you going to retire? I do. And I, I, I do. I, I'm, you know, I, I got married for the second time when I was um, 53 and I had three mantras. First one was my writing is going smoothly. The second one was I'm getting along with my honey. Cause after all, you know, a marriage that didn't work out leaves you a little trepidatious about the next one. And the third one is I'm going to live and be healthy to 97. But when I turned 80, I decided 97 feels like it's around the corner. So I've changed that mantra to 103. I've decided because I live in Manhattan. I, I think you live in Rhode Island. Is that right? No, I live in California. Oh, you live in California. Okay. Well, I live in Manhattan. And there are people living in Manhattan who go to the JCC and the YMCA, the YMHA, all these different organizations. They're in their 90s. They live at home. The city is a great place to be old because there's lots of public transportation and everything is all bunched together and there's lots of stimulation. So the main thing is we want to be healthy. We don't want to just stay alive. Right. And so I know I'm blessed with good health. Everybody who's 80 is not healthy. But at the moment, I am not good. I'm afraid to even say it out loud. Right. Now you say it out loud and you celebrate it. You celebrate the fact that I'm lucky. Um, so I don't know. I don't, I'm not retiring now. And what would I do if I retired? That's exactly what I think. People say to me, Sarah, when are you going to retire? I said, well, I don't want to retire. I, I mean, if I retired, I want to just, I would want to just keep doing what I'm doing. So what does it mean to retire if I would just keep doing what I'm doing? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, what would you do? I mean, the thing is, it it is, for me personally, I know that I don't have the energy and the stamina that I had 25 years ago. And I guess if I'm around in 25 years, I won't have it either. But I still do have energy and I still do have zest and I still feel like I can get everything going. So I'm planning on continuing to work. You have any dream that you're still trying to, to meet? Well, I would like, I'll, uh, this is the first time I'm saying this out loud. And, you know, saying it out loud means you make a little commitment, right? So this book, um, The Girl in the Red Boots Making Peace with My Mother, I start this book being very angry at my mother. And on the very last page of the book, I say something like this. I say, I have gone from being the disappointed daughter to the grateful daughter. I see that even though, even though, I haven't, there are still things that were hurtful. I have a different perspective on my life and I have a different perspective on my mother. And I now have this new idea. I want to write a one woman play 
being told from my mother's perspective. In other words, I wrote this from my perspective and I am been thinking a lot about it because people are constantly asking me, how do you make peace with your mother? And my short shorthand answer is stand in her shoes and you get to understand why she did some of the things that she might've done. And now I think I just have a curiosity. I want to stand in my mother's shoes. I want to think about how she would think about all these different stories that I told her perspective. Um, oh, I love it, Judy. You've got to do that. And the title is Standing in My Mother's Shoes. Well, that could be the title, Standing in My Mother's Shoes. I love Shoes. it. That's wonderful. That's just wonderful. Right. And it's this because every story can be told. Don't we know that anybody you ever have an argument with, they're two sides of the story, right? Right. And her side of the story. So I guess part of this is just maturing and understanding that there is no truth, that there are two sides of every story. And even though my mother did do the things she did, I guess it took me to get a lot older and understand that I thought I was doing things that might not have such a big consequence. And some of them did, you know? Well, and, and not only just getting older and realizing and da-da-da, but part of that, I would think would have been listening to all the stories that you listened to um, over the years about women and um, their relationship with their mother. Because it's so much, I find it so much easier to hear some people tell their story. And and even if I don't voice anything, I can, I can say, yeah, but you know what she might have been thinking? Exactly, exactly. Right. So I have, in the middle of my book, I have six stories of mothers and daughters I saw and that made me think about my own relationship, think about my own thinking. I'll, can I give one little example? Sure. Well, one example is there was one mother-daughter dyad that I was dealing with, and I kept thinking, why is this girl so harsh on her mother? Her mother really was doing the best she could do. Um, the mother, the girl was very angry at her mother because her mother had dragged her from one diet doctor to another. And, you know, going from one diet doctor to, one, to another can really screw up your metabolism. And, and this girl realized this in her 20s that going on diet pills when she was 10 years old was really terrible. And she thought, why would my mother do that? And we had her mother into a session and her mother said, I want to tell you something that I've never told you. I was the fattest girl in the class. I was teased. I felt so ashamed of myself. I felt I didn't fit in with my friends and I didn't fit into my family. And I never wanted that to be your fate. I didn't want you to be the fattest girl in the class. And that's why I dragged you from diet doctor to diet doctor. And when that mother told her story, I had to really say to myself, even though taking your daughter to a diet doctor is not what we recommend, she had her reason. It made sense from her point of view, right? She thought she was doing the best thing for her daughter. Right, right. Oh, Judy, that's wonderful. Well, it's wonderful. And, and, you know, by the time I finished writing the book, I thought, you know, I got divorced. And when I got divorced... I think I was doing the right thing for myself, but divorce has giant ramifications for children. And my children didn't think it was such a great thing that their mother did a great thing for her. Their life was upset and they were not very grown up. Yep. 
So I guess that's another thing. Really taking a hard look at yourself and understanding mistakes that you've made um, gave me more compassion for my mother. That's so, uh, just when you say that, we're going to have to end. But just when you say that, what I think is, I'm, I love standing in my mother's shoes. And then I love standing in my children's shoes. Right. Oh, my goodness. You make me want to cry. <laughs> so, Judy, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Well, you can look on my website. My it's my website is my name, Judith PhD.com. Or you can look up the girl in the red boots making peace with my mother. That will take you to my website. And that'll list all the different ways that people can get in touch with me. Send me an email, take a class, do something. So is the easiest way uh making peace with my mother.com? No. No. It, no, it's Judith Reske Rabinor, PhD.com. Okay. Judith oh, Reske. Yeah. PhD. Okay. So I'm going to spell that just so that people have it. J-U-D-I-T-H-R-U-S-K-A-Y-R-A-B-I-N-O-R-P-H-D.com. Whew. That's a lot to say. When I made up that That's right. <laughs> Thank you very much, Sarah. Oh, you're welcome, Judy. Thank you. So that's our time today. That's wonderful. Yeah, please join us again. You can find our Prime Spark podcast on every popular outlet. Find out more about Prime Spark at www.primesparkwomen.com. Thank you so much to my guest, Judith Rabinar. And don't forget, you can find her at Judith. RuskeRabinarPhD.com. Thank you for being with us. Take care, spread tolerance and love. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to stay updated, you can head over to my website, PrimesparkWomen.com and get my free spark guide, Seven Questions to Ignite Your Spark to help you discover your own spark. See you in the next episode.